What's up? Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I am your host, Chris Desmond, and this is a community where we explore the science, the stories, and the strategies of getting out of our comfort zones so we can find where the magic happens for us. Pretty excited about today's episode. Um, Today's guest is Steph Galdreau, founder of Stupid Easy Paleo and host of Harder to Kill Radio. Uh, Steph is incredible, Uh, not the least because her mission statement is to help people unleash their inner badass so they can change the world. I first met Steph at the Ancestral Health Symposium in New Zealand earlier this year. Um, she was giving a presentation on unhustling, and that really stuck a, struck a chord with me. Um, and thankfully for you guys, I got uncomfortable and went up and had a chat with her afterwards uh, all about it. And today, as a result, she agreed to come and uh, hang out with me for a, for a wee while and talk on the podcast. Now, this is probably a little bit longer than our usual episodes uh, because... We we just got into it and, and went deep. So, as I said, we, we went deep on a whole lot of topics today, um, including Steph's superhero origin story. We talk about body image, about shaping our story, changing your life, owning your health, Steph's four pillars of health, um, learning to be proactive rather than reactive, and Steph's three-part intervention on how to stop being reactive. We talk about creating humans who are harder to kill, what the best exercise is to do, um, and we go into that that uh, presentation that first drew me to Steph, um, all about unhustling and why we should unhustle and embrace that rather than being caught up in the hustle the whole time. We also talk about why we should do things that we know we're going to fail at, which is a pretty cool concept, actually, and we go deep on that one. And as always, we talk about getting uncomfortable. Now, this week's show is brought to you by the guys at howtomakesimplevideos.com. Learn how to make professional videos very simply. At the moment, they're offering 100 bucks off the course to listeners of the show, um, and they kick us a little bit of commission change as well, so they uh, just help support Uncomfortable is okay, uh, and the costs that go along with creating a, a podcast. So to claim that, just head over to howtomakesimplevideos.com, enter the discount code UNCOMFORTABLE at checkout, um, that's howtomakesimplevideos.com, and enter the code UNCOMFORTABLE. But thank you guys for getting uncomfortable with Steph and I today. Welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Excellent. It is an absolute pleasure to, to sit down and connect with you because um, we 
uh, first met up ooh, just over a month ago, probably at the Ancestral Health S- uh, um, Symposium in Queenstown, where you were speaking. It seems like it's been uh, a week since that happened, and it also feels like it's been a year. I don't know. Time is doing funny things to my brain. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm feeling that as well. It's like it, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but there's been so much packed in between that mm-hmm. you just kind of look back and you're like, oh, this is this is gone fast, but also gone yeah. long as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think we knew about the symposium coming back around for the second time quite ahead of time in advance, and it was like, that's coming up, it's on the it's on the calendar, we have, like the months were passing and passing, and then it was finally there, and it just flew by. Mm, mm, yeah, it's, you know? it, it, is, it is pretty crazy sometimes, um, and that's a topic I want to get into with you later as well, about hustling and unhustling mm. as well, but... I think what might be nice to start is if we have a little bit of a chat about um, about you, where you're from, uh, where you grew up, any kind of big formative experiences for you. So I've heard you use mm. it on your podcast, um, the Harder to Kill Pod, Harder to Kill Radio. What's your kind of superhero origin story? I quite, <laughs> I quite like that. Yeah, that comes from uh, my friend Sean Stevenson, who has the Model Health Show, and ever since he used that term on me. I was like, oh, I like that. So I've adopted his phraseology there. But wow, I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like I grew up kind of like a normal kid in a blue collar area of New England. So I grew up in Massachusetts, um, which is the complete opposite end of the country from where I currently live. And I've been in San Diego now for about 12 or 13 years, but grew up in the Northeast, um, was the oldest of four kids. And you know, in a lot of ways, like I said, I think we had a pretty typical blue collar, you know, lower middle class upbringing where we um, enjoyed the simpler pleasures in life and, and didn't have a lot of money. And in a lot of ways, that's actually formed a lot of my own hangups as I've become an adult, <laughs> sort of like the saving mentality and stuff like that. But that's another story. Um, you know, and growing up, I always really was interested in the natural world and science and very curious about things. And part of that was because of my grandfather. He was really like a father figure to me in my life. And he would always take us out on these little adventures in the, in the woods and like down to the pond and like catching pollywogs and looking at flowers and in the garden and stargazing. And I mean, it was just such a simple thing, but that really influenced me. And and that sort of carried through most of my life. I mean, I ended up majoring in biology, human physiology in college. I've always been super interested in how the body works and in biology in general, um, how living things operate. So that's been a really sort of important thread that's been woven throughout my life. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I, I always had this sense that my, I didn't feel good in my body probably from about the time I was 10 or 11. And that became a theme for me as well, because I went to lots of doctors and they were like, no, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. So part of part of my story is sort of this, this arc of like learning to not trust my body and listen to myself. And like, I knew I felt weird and didn't feel like things were right. And at the same time, I had all of these authority figures telling me I was okay. So that sort of story arc became an important part of my journey because it took years and years and years for me to finally start 
listening to my body again. Um, mm. And so that's been sort of a consistent theme and thread as well. Uh, come to find out when I was <laughs> in my 30s, I was diagnosed with endometriosis, which is a condition that women get and um, some women get, and it can cause severe pain and different symptoms around the menstrual cycle. So it was like 20 something years later when I was finally told like, Hey, you have this thing that's making you feel weird and giving you pain and causing different symptoms. And it was like this revelation, like I knew it. I just wanted to sort of shake somebody by the shoulders and be like, I I knew something wasn't right. But you know, along the way, because of that, that condition, through my teens and my early twenties, you know, my, my weight was always sort of up and down. I wasn't happy with how I looked. I felt like there was something wrong with my body. Uh, growing up, my stepdad was very, um, you know, I think we say things to kids and we don't think they're going to internalize it, but I was always kind of like the chubby kid. And, um, I had that told to me lots. And I, of course, internalized that and made it part of my story and who I was, which was like the chubby fat, unworthy of being loved kid. And, and so that was another thread that was sort of part of my story. So I had a lot of these things going on. Um, and just, you know, in my twenties wasn't feeling, still wasn't feeling right in my body. I would have all sorts of digestive issues and my energy levels were terrible. I would fall asleep at, you know, I'd be super drowsy at one, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, just terrible mood swings, like you name it, physical, emotional, mental stuff going on. None of it was ever bad enough for me to go, wow, I'm actually really sick. But it was sort of one of those things where I thought, well, I guess this is just how, I, how I'm how i going to be. This is just my body. And so that went on for several years. Professionally, at that point, I had graduated high school and then college and um, started to teach high school kids science. So I did that for 12 years. And, um, that was a really fun job in a lot of ways. And then a lot of other ways, it was very hard, but you know, throughout all of this, I sort of was always on this quest to like, try to lose weight, try to, um, make my body a lot smaller. I definitely looking back, think I had issues where I thought I, like I had a very dysmorphic view of my body. Um, because I remember at the time, you know, certain points I would see photographs of myself. And when those photos were taken, I would be like, wow, I would just have this really distorted view of how I looked. and like, wow, I really, really need to lose weight. I'm really big. And looking back at those photos now, I'm like, what? I mean, I, I look pretty normal um, to, to me at this point. But I just, I just never felt comfortable on a lot of different levels. And so... Um, can I can I jump in there, Steph? When you yeah, um, yeah, with the looking at those photos, obviously looking back now, you're like, well, actually, mm-hmm. I didn't need to lose weight. When you mm-hmm. looked at them at that time, or just kind of shortly mm-hmm. after, did you did, could you see the difference then, or did you still look at those photos and you think, oh, actually, I need to lose weight here? Well, there's definitely there's a photo that sticks out in my mind. Uh, it was high school graduation. Um, around that time. And I was actually at my best friend's house at a party at her graduation party. And I had a photo taken of me and this this photo, I still have a, a digital print of that um, circulating around. It's actually on my website. And 
and just remember at that point, because I had stopped playing sports, I was always really active. Um, growing up, I played soccer and I was into basketball and I mean, you name it, I was all, doing all sorts of physical activity. And then sort of my senior year, I stopped doing all of that. And I got a job as a, a bagger bagging groceries at a store in my town. And so I wasn't physically active. Like I did um, look like I had put on a lot of body fat by that point. Cause I really, my activity really went down. My eating habits were terrible, um, super addicted to sugar and just wanted to eat everything sweet and carby and um, didn't really understand about nutrition at that point. But when I look at that photo and I look at my body language too, it's like very defeated and, um, I didn't feel good in my body at that point, And I didn't feel good about my body at that point. So looking back, I can see that probably some of the things that I was dealing with, which is some kind of insulin resistance, I was underfed in a lot of ways, I was not physically active at all, I was very sedentary, like I can see that in myself at that point. So I wasn't healthy by any stretch of the means, I didn't feel healthy in my body, I didn't feel good. And yet I still look at myself and I'm like, you're not, you weren't obese, you know? And I think that that's, at the time I felt like, well, if I could just sort of become smaller, then I'll be happier and feel better. And, you know, like if you took my scale weight then compared to now, I mean, it's probably like 10 or 15 pounds different, which isn't like, we're not talking about a 50 or 100 pound transformation, you know, and my weight's been crazy up and down over the years when I was doing triathlons, sort of at the height of that when I was in my 30s. Um, I weighed the least I ever have weighed in my recollection. You know, I was sort of down to about probably 58 or 59 kilos. And um, I still remember at that point thinking, you are, you're just overweight, you're you look disgusting, you need to get smaller, you'll be better on the bike if you can get smaller, right? And so like, this is a constant self narrative. And now <laughs> I weigh more like 70 kilos. Right? So when when people sort of are like, Oh, you went on this journey of like finding paleo and like changing how you trained, because I went from doing triathlons to doing more strength training. And they're always like, How much weight did you lose? And I say none, I gained weight. <laughs> and they're like, No, that's how? Oh, God, that's not how it's supposed to work. But, you know, that's sort of always my point about why the scale is very misleading in a lot of ways. It's mm. because here I was at the lowest scale weight I've been in my adult life. I still wasn't happy at all, right? So I was unhappy still. It wasn't like magically I felt super happy about myself. So still unhappy. Um, at the very, very, very beginning of this journey to change how I ate. So I still didn't feel very good in my body, um, had a lot of digestive issues still, like acne as an adult. I mean, you name it, still dealing with a lot of these persistent issues that have been going on for years. Still had to go every every day I'd leave work. So I taught at a high school. I'd leave high, high school every day. I would drive to the corner store, like the dairy, and I would get – we don't call it a dairy here, but we call it a dairy there, right? <laughs> To go yeah, to the dairy yeah. and I would get uh, like M&Ms and Coke, you know, to try to pop, prop up my energy because I, I would drive home and I would get drowsy and like feel like I was falling asleep at the wheel of the car at 3 p.m. So still had a lot of these persistent issues. And I just thought, you know, this it's not just about the scale here. 
And, and so that point, this is sort of when I was in my mid thirties or so, well, more like early thirties, but when I was in my earlier thirties, uh, and I'm 38 now, I sort of found this idea of like eating a more ancestral diet. And a friend happened to be reading this book, Paleo Diet for Athletes by Lauren Cordain. Um, I knew I recognized his co-author who is Joe Friel because he's very big in the endurance sports world. And I picked up the book in the fall of 2009 and read it. And then I said, okay, I'm going to do the holidays, going to do it up big, going to like eat all the gluten and do all the things. And January 2010 is when I'm going to start. And I'm just going to jump in and try this. And I did. I was more of a rip the bandaid off kind of person, um, which I know doesn't work for a lot of people, which is why I usually caution people like it's okay to go slow. But um, I did. I ripped the bandaid off and sort of did the whole thing. And within a few months started to feel a lot better. Um, a lot of these issues that I was feeling, my energy levels, all sorts of stuff started to change and, and get better and feel better. But it was a really long journey. I mean, eventually I left the endurance sports world um, and started doing more strength training. At first it was like CrossFit with some weightlifting and then sort of do it, started doing more just strength training and left CrossFit behind too. But it's been this like seven plus year, it's been almost eight years that this has been, you know, like first I sort of addressed what I was eating and then it was like, how was I um, training and how was I sleeping? So I wasn't sleeping very well. I wasn't sleeping very much. And then from there, it sort of turned inward to this, like the mindset and the negative self-talk and the self-belief and the self, um, like the self-fulfilling stories and all of the sort of more higher level things that, that were really keeping me very small and, and not just my, like I wanted to be small in my body, but I also was like very small in my mindset. And to make a long story short, um, when I, sort of started eating paleo in 2010, uh, a friend of mine suggested that I should start a paleo blog because I was blogging all about food on my mountain biking blog at the time. And uh, I did. And I had no idea what I was doing. And it was just for fun. And here we are. <laughs> Six years later, um, I actually after about a year and a half left my teaching job and decided I was going to try to do this whole nutrition food um, thing full time. And so here I am still doing that. And it's been over four years. And so that's what I do for a living now is I coach other people and how to make these lifestyle changes. And uh, I'm a strength coach at a local gym. I mean, I, my life is totally different now. And, and yet, in a lot of ways, I see those threads from the very beginning of when I was a kid, right? Like my love of science and asking questions and figuring things out and helping people. And so it's, it's been kind of a, a crazy journey. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. There's a lot in there that I want to, uh, <laughs> I, I want to unpack. No, I, I, I like it. People, people kind of, uh, everyone has a different story and everyone sort of tells it slightly differently and um obviously you've told it a reasonable amount of times because you're just <laughs> yeah. very eloquent with it and it's a, a lovely thread rather than sort of jumping jumping back and forth which is kind of the way that I tend to tell mine um mm. there are a few things that I wanted to um I wanted to kind of get in there and I think like one of the points you made was um, the the things that kind of shape our story 
when we're younger is is an important one. And I think mm. you you picked out um, the the things that you get told, and often it's often it's not sort of a, like it's not just a really consistent. This is this is um, you your this is you're this way, you're this way, you're this way, you're this way. Sometimes it can be sort of some offhand comments by a, by a whole lot of people. Um, and actually, like I, my day job, I work as a, a physiotherapist and mm-hmm. there's actually some interesting research coming out at the moment around the messages that health professionals give to people and how that effect, affects their ability to get better. So if you, even if you're throwing out kind of an offhand comment to people, um, they, they pick up on that and then they incorporate that into their, into their story and their journey of, of getting better. And I think, I mean, it's, it's challenging to kind of consistently monitor everything that you're saying so that you don't throw anything negative out there or you don't give your mates a little bit of a ribbing from time, time to time. But it is interesting, um, how we incorporate some of those into a, into our own story. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts around from a, from a person hearing those kind of offhand or those negative comments, how to process them so that they, that we don't internalize them to our story. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's such a tough question because, on one hand, um, and, and I'm speaking sort of for adults, like I think for mm, kids, yes. it's, it's, it's a bit different, but you know, for like talking adult to adult, it, it's hard. I feel like life has so much duality. It's, it, it's just like a mind blowing to me because on one hand I'm like, okay, I know very well and very clearly that the words we use to each other and what we say to each other matter so much the words that we constantly put out into the world matter so much and yet there's an aspect of personal responsibility in all of that too and I don't think I would have I like I didn't know that even probably like that wasn't on the forefront of my mind five or ten years ago was hey first of all you need to have some you speaking to myself like you need to have some awareness of what's going on in your mind because every thought that you have, you, you don't need to react to. Um, every thought that you have in your mind isn't necessarily a true and accurate statement. So I'm talking about just the, the, the garble that's, you know, the monkey mind, like yeah, the, 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 chatter. the Yeah, the chatter, right? So the chatter is like, says a lot of things. And a lot of times the stuff the chatter says just isn't true or accurate of what's going on in the world. Or if you're internalizing someone else's voice, it's not necessarily true or accurate either. Yet we often elevate what other people say because we're such social creatures, right? And belonging and community is just part of, it's woven into the fabric of who we are as a species um, at that level. Right? It's like we're talking about million years, millions of years of evolution um, that has sort of created this like very interesting um, social structure for us where it's like we, we want to be along, we want to be part of the group. So what other people say, like we want to fit in um, other people, what they say about us, uh, it matters. It can be very painful, but at the same time, um, it can also, if we stop and think about it, we realize, we can realize like 
if you said to me, we got on this call and you were like, Steph, your hair just looks disgusting today. Like you look a mess. You know, that shirt's super ugly. I have a choice, right? I have a choice as to whether or not I can make that statement true in my life and elevate it to this like factual thing and make it mean something and go down the negative spiral that comes from some of those judgments. So I struggle with it because I see it from both sides. And I think it is as a person. So first of all, I can't control you as a person in the comments you're going to make to me. Right. If you want to tell me my shirt is ugly and I'm a terrible person and my hair is a mess and whatever, like there's a difference. I can either spend so much of my time and energy trying to manipulate and control what you're going to do and say, um, or I can realize that the thing that I have control over is how I respond to the situation. And I think that's sort of a higher level concept um, mm. in terms of like, it's hard to get to that point. It takes a lot of practice where you're like able to sort of stop and look at something from a very objective point of view. Like somebody's going to say this thing to me. Does it mean something about me? How am I going to react to that? Like to even have that train of thought and to not react automatically takes a lot of practice and a lot of awareness, but I can control what I say. So if that's the other side of that coin, right? Is if I walk around and I'm cruel and mean, and I'm going to say things to people that are hurtful, that's a reflection on what's going on in my inner world, right? We tend to react in those ways. We tend to act in those ways. And so if I, you know, the only, so I guess the thing that I am constantly sort of as a practice for me is how am I showing up in the world? Mm. You know, um, and, and what I put out into the world is how I'm going to tend to see the world too. So by and large, I guess the, this is the roundabout point is if I want to experience goodness and kindness and gratitude, like I've got to put that out into the world too. And so in those situations, taking responsibility for our own actions and words is very important. So it's sort of like this interesting dual nature. Like I don't feel like, um, you know, words, words do matter. Um, but I can't control what other people are going to say to me. I can only make the agreement with myself to do better in particular situations or on any given day or with any you know, given topic or however I'm showing up in the world. Mm, yeah, I, I really agree with that. I mean, I like your shirt, by the way. Um, maybe, could have <laughs> maybe could have done something with the hair, eh? It's lucky we're podcasting and not on, uh, oh, no. not on a video, though. Um, I did shower this morning for you, though. Oh, that's I good. That's good. I, to be honest, I haven't. Um, I've been out and walked the dog as well, so I'm slightly clammy. Um, but... You've thrown me, um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, you make um, like the 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 point that you that you make as well is that I mean I think it starts with that it starts with that self awareness of what is going on in your head, um, and I like the I really like the word that you used reactive as well, and I think kind of with in the sort of environment that we tend to live in at the moment, there's so much stimulus that happens to us that it's really easy for us to be reactive and that we're mm-hmm. like, we're being stimulated. We react, we're being stimulated. We react, but um, stopping being reactive. And I mean, it's, 
it is it's probably being kind of proactive in the way that we're sort of using our minds to not be reactive um, to to the words that other people tell us and just kind of stopping something comes in stopping and thinking for a second hey is this true or is this is this not and the hard part is when that uh, that kind of comment comes in and that's you've got that sort of monkey chatter going on in your mind and then that reinforces something that's going on there and you think oh Mm-hmm. Actually, I've got to I've got to sit there and unpick that. That's one of the challenging things. But I think as as you get better at doing that and better at not being reactive in the stuff coming in, it also it's also beneficial in not being reactive in the stuff that goes out as well. Mm. Because I think a lot of that negativity that comes out of us is quite reactive it's not um it's not stuff that we've thought through and it's not stuff that we're kind of proactive about in terms of being being kind and being nice and being empathetic and uh and generous as well so i think that as you get better at one i think there's a lot of crossover in terms of getting better at the at the other stuff as Mm. well but it's a yeah yeah, it's a it's a practice, and I think it's something that like like the the physical body. It's something that you need to train as well, and with that, you have like like physical training. You have good days, and you have days where it's just rubbish. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh. it's just yeah. just so hard to be nice today. Yeah, to myself yeah, and know, to other people. It's so true, and and you know, I think you summarized it really well. And I this this is something for me that's even in its infancy, like this way of looking at the world and this self-awareness and um, Lord knows the reactivity portion of it. Like I'm doing better now where if I, somebody sends me an email or says something and I like the, my first thing to say back is like just a retort. Like I grew up in new England (laughs) Um, sarcasm and you know, like, that sort of thing is just part of the culture. And here in the West Coast, it's totally not. Um, Do people get so, sarcasm on the West Coast? My experience, and again, the, like teaching in Southern California, is that sarcasm is not a thing that's really? widely – it's not as much a thing here. So I really had to sort of t- like curb that um, when I down. moved here. That would be, like, yeah, be why you like coming to New Zealand, though. We're a relatively <laughs> yeah. sarcastic place. Totally, can totally hang with that. And I have a Scottish husband as well, so uh, Yeah. <laughs> they take it to another degree. Yeah, but I think just, you know, yeah. it's sort of learning to sit on things and not fire a response back really quickly. You know, and every time I've sometimes I'll draft something and just leave it in draft and I'll come back the next day and read it and I'm like, Oh, it's it is that is almost kind of a harsh way to react or uh, I, there's a way I could react much better. Um, then, you know, I think that's been helpful, but it, it's hard. It's, it's something I have to think about and be very conscious of. Mm, mm, Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a practice. And I think, yeah, I, I'm kind of similar as well as that. I probably through the majority of my twenties, I operated from a really reactive, um, really reactive place. Uh, and it's yeah sort of over the probably the maybe not quite as long as you as uh, it's been something that I have been working on as well as my self-awareness and 
mm. what's like what I'm putting into myself and, and as well as what I what I'm getting out. Um, both kind of on a like a physical level, but also on a mental level as well. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's a, it's a slow process, and you you kind of look at it on a sort of a daily or a weekly basis, and you're not seeing too much change. Sometimes actually might see yourself go backwards over that time, and maybe <laughs> over, even over a month it goes backwards. But if you look at it like on a yearly basis or on a couple of yearly couple of years, as you said yourself that like where you are now is completely different to where you were six or seven years ago. And the same with me, like where I am today, I'm 34 at the moment, where I am today is completely different to where I was when I was 30 or, Mm. and that was completely different to where I, well, not completely, so a bit different to where I was when I was 25. So Mm -hmm. I think it's those, it's those small incremental gains like with, like with lifting weights that, you you slowly improve your improve your practice there, um, and I like I, I had another question for you in terms of, and you may have kind of exactly the same answer with it, but in regards to your to the body image um, mm. and what was what was going on there, and I think for a for a guy um, that. That is sometimes it's like a challenging concept for me to understand a little bit because it's something that I'm I've never been through and maybe it's maybe saying as a guy is is the wrong way to put it because I'm sure that there are guys out there that have it as well um, that challenges in regards to their to their body image but I imagine that for a female because of like your hormonal fluctuations and things that. Mm-hmm that happen, the, the changes and the kind of the effect that has on your body and on your mindset is, is a lot more uh, than just kind of a guy who's basically hormonal levels stay the same the whole, the whole time around. I heard <laughs> right. a, actually, I heard a nice analogy, and this is a little bit of a segue, that um, a guy is kind of like a Toyota Hilux. So I don't know what the, the similarity would be in uh, – in america but basically it's like a it's just like a kind of a working vehicle that you can just put whatever in it into it and it just kind of goes and goes and goes Mm -hmm. and goes forever but a female is like a formula one car really Mm -hmm. finely tuned and if something's a little bit out it 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 bounces it bounces up and down um but kind of back to my back to my original (laughs) point in question hopefully i can get back there and remember what it was that yeah, it's a it it's a challenging kind of concept for me to to wrap my head around because it's it's not something that I've I've always felt relatively comfortable in my body, and maybe that's because when I was when I was younger, um, and especially kind of being a being a guy, we're sort of celebrated for what we can do with our bodies that if you're good at sport or if you can kick a ball far or throw a ball far or run fast, that's the stuff that we get positive mm. re-engagement about. Um, I don't know if I've ever been told that I was pretty when I was little or mm. um, mm-hmm. well, that was that was something that happened. But in terms of – this is a really long question, by the way. Um, <laughs> in, in terms of kind of where you – we started off with the with the body image. I mean, mm-hmm. 
and you kind of always felt that, hey, there was something not quite right about this. Where did you come to the realization point that, hey, this needs to change? Mm. And then how did you go about changing your story around that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I think it had, I think there were a few inputs from when I was a kid. Um, and I was very much into sports. So when I was about mm, eight, seven or eight, I got into playing soccer. So I played soccer and um, I started, I was also doing dance classes, my sister and I, and uh, she's very close in age to me. We're about a year and a half apart. She looks completely different to me. She's always been sort of the tall, like skinny girl. And I've always been the complete opposite. I'm like kind of built like a tank. So um, there was always that very interesting, you know, since we were so close in age, we we're always together. Like I was always sort of comparing myself to her. Um, you know, I had this sort of feedback from my stepdad. I got bullied when I was in school, um, about age 10, um, that sort of stuff. And so I had like all these things kind of happen to me. And even though I was in sports, um, pretty much my whole life and, and yeah, it was always like steps are really good. So when I was in high school, I played defense, um, on soccer team and I was sort of like a middle defender because I could run pretty fast, but I could also kick the ball pretty far. And so, but it was always like linked to like any time I remember somebody giving me praise, it was always like, wow, you have such a strong leg on you. Like, look how solid you are. Or like, you know, just little ways to reinforce that. Like I was different, like I was bigger or I was like more muscular or, and so that was always sort of part of that story. So like, even though I was fairly good at soccer and, you know, I had that sort of physical outlet and compared to, you know, sort of comparing to how we talk to boys, it still was like always linked to my body, you know, in that mm-hmm. way. And so that was always part of it. And, and I didn't look like my sister. Like I, I was kind of, even though I played sports, like I loved reading and as a bookworm and, you know, all of this stuff. And so I think it, it just became heightened for me that like there was something about me that was very different. Um, and it really wasn't until I was in, I sort of like started eating paleo, which is in 2010. At that point I was still doing triathlons and still doing lots and lots of mountain biking. And even amongst the mountain biking community, I remember taking a photo. It's like a big team photo with all of my teammates on this biking team. And there I am in the middle. Cause I'm like the shortest one. I'm the, the girl. And, um, I just remember looking at myself and going, I'm like so massive compared to these other people. Like I just looked so big in my mind and it really wasn't until I started, um, a friend dared me to try CrossFit in 2010 about six months after I started paleo. So it was not really related, but I, it was sort of, you know, they, they're known for kind of going hand in hand, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't like I joined CrossFit and then they tried to convert me, uh, sort of the other way around. But I started lifting weights for the first time. Like, and I had dabbled a little bit when I was in my early twenties, I was like a kind of a gym rat, but I had no idea what I was doing. I would just go in and like go on the machines and like do the adductor and add you know, like, those machines and like lat pull downs. And there wasn't a lot of free weights involved um, in all of that. And I really had no idea what I was doing. So I really didn't have a strong background in strength training. 
And it wasn't until I joined CrossFit that I really sort of got into this idea of like surprising myself because I had the structure and I had coaches who could sort of help me progress, right? And say, you know, it was women and, and I work with a lot of women in, in our gym too. And they tend, and it's, it is a stereotype, but it is very true amongst a lot of the women that I work with is like they're, they hold back a lot because they're either afraid of getting hurt they don't want to look bulky. Like they think that if they lift heavier weights that they're going to, something bad's going to happen. And so I think having the structure and having the coaching when I was at CrossFit helped me and encouraged me to lift heavier, to really bust through these sort of, I don't know, like, like glass ceilings that I had for myself. And I remember when I squatted 200 pounds and I just thought, what the what? Like, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I could do that. Like, do a pull-up? Are you kidding me? Like, I never felt strong enough to do a pull-up in my entire life. And I remember the first day that I got this pull-up, it was just like such a revelation that I could do this thing and I could be strong and it felt amazing. And not only that, but then once I did the thing, and, and this is sort of like a psychological concept but when you you're able to do the thing or take that action then that further reinforces that feeling and so I just remember this like domino effect of getting stronger and when you're a novice of course you have novice gains so that's really great because you get quick progress if you stick with it and that was just so motivating because for the first time it didn't matter how much I weighed it like it was all about what I could do mm. and, and for myself. And that was just so, oh, it was so empowering in so many different ways. And I remember, you know, I didn't, for the first time, I didn't have to like, because when I was racing bikes and stuff, obviously, and you're doing triathlons, there's a huge premium put on power to weight ratio. Can you push yourself up a hill at the lowest body weight and do it the fastest you're going to win? <laughs> right? Like that's just physics. And so there was always a really huge premium put on low body weight. And um, for the first time, I didn't have to think about that. It wasn't even part of my mental framework. It didn't matter how much I weighed. In fact, if I had a little bit more muscle on me, then I could actually lift more weights and I was stronger and I could accomplish more things. And I remember uh, it was a couple of years after I started CrossFit, but I went to in San Diego here, we have um, the Navy SEALs. And I went to, they have an obstacle course, a friend of mine's in the Navy, and we went over to this Navy SEALs obstacle course that they use for BUDS training, which is where you're trying out to get into the Navy SEALs. And we went on this day, there was nobody there, and I got a pair of like turnouts and just, you know, we just went and messed around, but I was able to do every single obstacle on the obstacle course under my own power and my own ability, right? And so it wasn't like, and of course we didn't do it for time or anything like that, but like they do. But I was just like, that blew my mind that I was strong enough to do, to climb ropes. I was strong enough to essentially like jump up onto a really high platform and like do a muscle up and push myself up onto this platform. I was able to jump across things and I was able to like, it, it just, that was another day that just sort of blew my mind. Like I never thought I could do any of these things and now I'm doing them. And like, what else can I accomplish? And so that feeling like that, those earlier experiences are what really helped me to see that there's more, first of all, there's more to self-worth than your appearance. 
And in a way, I mean, I've had people sort of debate this with me where they're like, well, strength is a way for you to like categorize your self-worth too, because, you know, and, and I understand that. Right. And so it has to, it, to me, it's a vehicle um, for understanding. It was for me a, a way for under, a way for me to understand and like see that I had worth beyond just how I looked. Mm. And yes, could strength training get taken away from me? Absolutely. Do I have a better sense of like that I have worth as a person regardless of what I can accomplish? Yes. And that's been very difficult because my part of my early narrative as well is that I was very good in school and I love external praise and external recognition. And that's just always been something that's fueled me. Like I've always loved to learn, but hey, I was good at it too. So as long as I could get praise and reinforcement for that, then that meant I was a good person. It meant I was a, a worthy kid, a worthy adult even. And so it's been very interesting for me to learn that there are other ways to have worth, like to have worth as a person, regardless of your accomplishments and regardless of what you can do. Like that's even another level, right? Because we move from like how we look and our outward appearance to what we can accomplish to now like this concept of I'm good and worthy no matter what, like I don't have to be the best. I'm still worthy of love and self-respect and all of these other things. So it's been a really interesting trajectory to get through all that. But for sure, strength training is the number one thing that happened to me that changed my own um, view of myself and allowed me to step outside the box of, wow, you just have to really work on making your body smaller so you'll be better and more um, more worthy of of everything. Um, so for me, lifting weights and, and, and getting physically strong begat mental strength in, in a lot of ways. Mm, that's real cool. And it sounds like, uh, like you've changed the way that you celebrate yourself, that like it went from the celebrating yourself uh, kind of the number that was on the scale at the mm -hmm. at the time to um actually kind of what you what you could could do and that's a really cool part of the process to, i think to, as you start to get going with things is like you having those kind of novice gains and those quick mm -hmm. wins just reinforces mm -hmm. like actually i can i can do this this is pretty cool this gives me a, this gives me a, a buzz without kind of needing heaps of external validation in regards to mm -hmm. that. And then that's even progressed further now. So, I mean, obviously, uh, the, this definitely wouldn't be ideal if you got injured, but you've mm -hmm. kind of got to the point now where actually if you got injured and you couldn't train for a while and you couldn't do those things, then you would still have that self-worth as a, as a person and, I think like another cool point that you make is that it's, it's, this isn't something that you wake up with one morning and you're there. <laughs> There's no quick no. hack or quick fix or no. The, no. the four simple tricks to, yeah, have lips like Kylie Jenner or something. Um, <laughs> that it's, it's a process over time and it's, yeah. uh, it's kind of something that, yeah, that you work on. And like with that, do you have days where, that kind of chatter just comes back up and mm -hmm. um, devalues yourself as well. That you, and yeah, oh, absolutely. Like I'm not immune to I'm not immune to it. 
it's it's there uh, some days. I, you know, I think for everybody has that internal voice, right? Um, is it as negative as it used to be? Not at, not even close. Uh, does it creep around when I'm feeling more vulnerable in my life for different reasons? Sure. The difference now is that, and, and I'm not perfect at it. Again, it's, it's sort of like always going to be a practice. But the difference is that now I can feel... Uh, I think it's really important for me to, and this might help your listeners, like tuning into physical cues that precede in a lot of cases, the mental state or the emotional state is really, really, it's really interesting because I'll be able to feel myself reacting sometimes and just having one of those negative days before it ever manifests in sort of the mental, emotional way. Uh, so for example, um, <laughs> we just had Black Friday here in the US and I was running a, a big promotion and the website broke for half the day. <sighs> of course, as these things do. And so immediately I could sort of feel my stress levels increasing. I would get a lot of sort of um, jaw, neck tension. And I know so right, like noticing like, ooh, I've got a lot of jaw tension right now, like, I'm definitely not in a relaxed sort of good state to deal with things. And so it was one of those things where it was like, okay, we're not going to freak out, right? So I was sort of like talking myself through this, like, we're having technical difficulties. We've, we're on the case, like, there's no use in freaking the heck out, because that's not going to help you think clearly. So for me, it's been getting way more in tune with my physical body. And knowing how that could manifest itself later on, either in the moment or like further on in the day. Like if I snap at someone because I'm feeling more stressed out or I'm just not feeling centered or whatever it is, I haven't eaten well, I haven't slept well, travel, like knowing those things has helped me preempt the reaction, right? And be, and, and be able to stop it. Um, but yeah, things catch me off guard all the time. And sometimes, you know, it's as simple as like a really rude social media comment. And immediately I feel my adrenaline go and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, um, so I'm, I'm not immune to it. I, I'm not like a, a yoga master. I'm not like a, a Buddhist pro or anything like that. But it's been, again, that awareness of, of when that happens and when I feel myself going down that path because the difference used to be I would wake like kind of come to in the middle of the horrible having this terrible mental and emotional breakdown I'd bypass all the physical stuff it all happened and I never knew and then by the time I realized that I was like you know in the middle of an anxiety storm or a stress storm or whatever you want to call it where all of a sudden like one bad thing happens and I'm a worthless terrible person I don't get up off the couch for three hours because I just sit there in a spiral of shame. Um, you know how those things happen, right? Like you, one bad thing happens and all of a sudden you make it mean that you're a worthless, terrible person and you don't deserve to be alive. And I would, I would sort of wake up, like come to in, in that situation, realizing it had gone really far. And now I'm able to sort of head it off at the past most of the time and say, 
okay, I'm feeling physically that something's going on. And if I don't nip it now, um, I'm going to maybe end up over here. So what can I do to sort of remain calm and, and think this through? Or I don't know, go turn on my meditation app for 10 minutes and like, or do some deep breathing or whatever I need to do. But it's sort of realizing that I can bypass it if mm. I'm aware. And that's been a huge thing for me. So yeah, no, I still have those moments. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm a, yeah. I'm a human. <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a really leading question that I asked you there. Um, and you Sorry. answered it beautifully. No, no, it was, it was good. Um, yeah. And, and I'm the same as well as that. Um, I think you're like all the practice that you put in. Well, maybe if you're like a, like a Buddhist master or a, yeah, just a, a crazy good yogi, you might get to the point where, where this doesn't happen. Um, mm. But I don't know if I've ever met anyone that it, it doesn't happen to. But I think, as you say, it's you get better at identifying those signals to start with, to know when you're starting to like get sucked down the plug hole. Um, so you can like either you can put the plug back in or you could you can kind of uh, you can stop and, as you say, hit it off at the pass. And actually what I'm, what I'm interested in, Steph, is like you do a lot of coaching work with people as well. If you are kind of getting them into like starting off with this concept of figuring out how to head it off, mm-hmm. what do you like, how do you go about that with, with someone? What would you get them to do? So the simplest thing that I do with people is a three part sort of intervention if and when they can recognize that things are starting to go down that road of having like a real reaction to something. And the first one is to just stop and get present to where you're at. Because when we're in those moments of sort of anxiousness or feeling that stress response, we tend to like float away from our bodies sometimes and feel like we're not like we go into this very internal mental world where we have all these imagined threats and if we are able to pull ourselves back out into the present we realize hey I'm actually sitting in my living room on a Friday afternoon there's no one here and literally nothing is happening to me right and so the first is to just stop and get really present Um, I've heard people describe this in different ways some people like to sort of um, tap their fingertips together and sort of be like hey I'm here in my body right now Uh, other people like to feel very grounded in the earth So like grounded through your feet, like you can feel the ground, you're here right now, like look around you, get really clear that nothing bad is actually happening to you. There is no clear and present danger right now. So that's number one. Number two is to breathe. Because when we get stressed, um, we stop breathing through our, you know, sort of diaphragm, diaphragmatic breathing, we stop breathing deeply, and we breathe very much through our chest, our shoulders, our, our upper back, our neck. Right. And that sort of shallow breathing can then make our stress response feel worse. And so if we want to get the parasympathetic nervous system to kick in instead of the sympathetic, which is our sort of flight or fight or freeze, and we want the sort of like calm, we want to be able to calm down a little bit, being able to breathe through our belly is really important to activate the vagus nerve. Um, so breathing, and you can do this anywhere. You don't have to lie down in a special room. You don't have to go to a special studio. You can practice this anywhere. You feel yourself starting to get a little bit away from yourself, right? Um, and there are many different methods of doing this breathing. Sometimes it's just as simple as 
like paying attention to that in breath and like really letting your belly soften so that your diaphragm can work properly. Uh, there's box breathing where you're using a certain pace to, to count yourself and slow your breath down, which is very helpful for a lot of people because when we tend to get in that um, sympathetic state, we become very shallow and rapid breathers. Um, so some people like to do like a four count inhale, a two count hold, a four count exhale. I mean, I've heard everything up to like some crazy uh, <laughs> long inhales and exhales, like whatever works for you. So it's stop and then breathe. Okay. And then once that's, you've sort of calmed down a little bit. The third part that I, I have found helpful for me and I try to get other people to experiment with is to do something creative with your tip, preferably with your hands. Um, because if we're just going to sit around and think some more, you might end up in that state. And when you're in that sort of creative, more open state, you make it a lot harder for the stress response to close you in. Right. And when you're in that sort of creative open state, and I'm not saying you have to like sit down and um, like, if you're, if you like to draw, like you're going to draw the the most beautiful thing and it's going to be a big project, but it could be a sim- something as simple as going and chopping some vegetables. It could be, um, you know, it could be writing something if you're really like a, a writing practice, a gratitude practice works for you. It could be coloring. It could be um, going and folding the laundry, like something to just get you up and moving and like get it out of your own head. And I feel like for me, if it's something that's a little bit more on the creative side, something I already really like to do, then I can sort of get lost in that more of that flow state. So um, I think stopping and breathing is a good strategy for just to begin. And then if you can add that third component where you're actually going and doing something with your hands, um, it a lot of times allows us to get out of that. Just like I'm going to sit here and stew over what's bothering me um, and, and gets us thinking about other things. Yeah, it just kind of redirects where, yeah. where your thought processes and where your energy is going to as well once you've kind of stopped it with – with the first two things, yeah. That's, sure, yeah, that's a cool way to do it, and um, yeah, I like the I like the that kind of third step with it. I think that's that's sort of like a really a really valuable one, and I really like the way you kind of enca- encapsulate creativity with that as well. Um, I find sometimes actually like after the first two steps, like you just stop and do like ten press ups or. Um, yeah. A couple, five or ten single leg squats, and um, it's just sure. a kind of a just breaks things up for you yeah. as well, which is which is good. Um, well, Steph, I know at the start I said that we wouldn't uh, end up talking for three hours, and uh, <laughs> we've been going for a while already. And I still have a couple of other questions for you, so let's yeah. let's change tack a little bit. I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about um, the work you do uh, in terms of like harder to kill. Because mm-hmm. I really, your your podcast is awesome, harder to kill radio, um, Thank you. and I, I love the interviews that you that you have um, with people and and kind of the conversations that you get into. What um like where, what was the genesis for that? How mm-hmm. did that kind of kick off, and and why did that kick off? The podcast. Uh yeah yeah, or even the the, the concept. Yeah okay, so the concept. Um, the term, I first heard the term harder to kill from, it's like a Mark Ripposo quote, strong people are 
harder to kill and more useful in general or something like that, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly. I first heard that like many, many years ago, and I was at a nutrition seminar here in San Diego giving a seminar at a local gym. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to lots of different crowds when the worlds of fitness and nutrition intersect. And I've spoken to everybody from, you know, CrossFit Games athletes and high-level elite athletes to your normal person who's a mom or a dad or a retired person or a student and is just like, I'm going to exercise because it makes me feel good and it's good for me, you know. So I I will always sort of survey the crowd and, and sort of find out where people are at because, you know, I think there's a tendency to um, overdo it with information for people, make it too theoretical and not practical enough and talk to the round crowd. So if I like walk in and I'm like, we're all going to calculate our macros today and these people are just like, uh, I like to work out a few times a week because then I can pick up my kids easier or, you know, like whatever it is, like it's probably not the right match. Um, and so I was at this seminar talking to a group of people and I said, so something like, so why are you here? Right. You're here because you want to make it across the games. And they were all like, nah, and I was like, right. You probably want to be healthier and happier and harder to kill. Right. And they were like, yeah. And they all sort of like, elbowing their neighbors. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm onto something here. And it just sort of came out that way. And so for a long time, it was just sort of like, if you want to be healthier and happier and harder to kill, like, that's what I want to do. I want to help create those human beings. And then we just sort of shorten it to harder to kill because, um, you know, in a way, like we say healthier, what does that really mean? Or more fit? Like, what does that really mean? And, and so harder to kill is sort of like my catch all phrase for, being stronger and more resilient, but it's not just about the food you eat. It's not just about the type of exercise that you do. It's this sort of like philosophy on how do we build people that are more resilient in many different dimensions, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Because if I have a person who's their sort of like, um, I guess, most ideal body weight, or they've like dieted down and they're super lean and jacked, and everything else about their life is terrible then to me, that person's not holistically healthy, right? Um, and so I think sometimes we tend in the nutrition and fitness community, we tend to lose the forest for the trees is like, we're trying to build these like super, everybody's like, I want to get super jacked and get abs. And I'm like, but for you to get, can we get you there? We could, but are you willing to give up all these other things that you're going to have to sacrifice? And if you're, if, if the real motivation underneath it is that you want to feel happier about yourself or more confident or whatever it is, like, I hate to break it to you, but you may get your abs and still not feel okay about yourself. Personally, I know that that can happen, right? Um, and I, I don't want to say that it's everybody. Um, and, and I don't want to say that, you know, working on a, a goal, like an aesthetic goal is bad, but I just try to get people to be a little bit realistic. And so it's like, if we want to build people who are more confident, more self-actualized, more, more empowered to do the things that they want to do in life and can get out of their own way, right? Because for a lot of my clients, it's, it starts as like a, and this is my, mirrors my own story, which is probably isn't very surprising. It's like, it was the food, then it was the fitness, then it was like, there's still other stuff underneath that. Let's keep digging. And it became an issue of the self-confidence, the self-judgment, the, um, the feeling of being empowered and having personal power in certain situations that then led me to be able to make these like really important decisions in my life 
that that got me to this point. And a lot of my clients always tell me, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I'm eating the right things and I'm, you know, going to the classes and doing the fitness thing. And like, I still feel like something is not right. So what's underneath that or, or what's sort of above that is a lot of times just how we choose to see the world. And um, sometimes we've had lots of bad things dealt to us and we have to sort of make our way through that stuff. But ultimately, it's my belief that we have a lot more. Um, I, I say this sort of like unleash your inner badass because I feel like it's for a lot of people, it's there. I don't need to fill that. I don't need to build that for you. Like, I don't need to give you all the parts to help you build your own badassery. I need to help you get out of your own way because it's already there. Mm. Right. Um, and I think that's a very different distinction. And so part of what I do with Harder to Kill is like, I want to help people realize that like the natural state of a human being, we didn't get this far as a species because we were totally crap, right? We had to had to be smart and we had to be resourceful and we had to have community and we had to have all these things to get to where we are now. And it's like, because of modern environments, and you touched on this earlier, that that gap is growing and growing, right? It makes it harder and harder for people to to have that connection. But I feel like if I can help people realize that strength is innate and um, a feeling of like confidence and capability is innate and it's there already, you just need to get out of your own way to access that. That's what I try to help people do. And it takes different forms, right? And so part of this philosophy is it's not just about food. So people are like, oh, stupid, easy paleo, you just do recipes. And I'm like, well, it started like that. But everybody knows that you can't just eat really well and then have your life in shambles and feel great about yourself and feel good in your body. So it's really a four-pronged approach. It's nourishing yourself with what you eat, how you eat it, right? That's important. No one really talks about and why you eat it. It's strengthening your body in a multitude of different ways. So it's not just lifting weights, right? It's about um, moving your body more throughout the day if you're very sedentary. It's dealing with, you know, soft tissue stuff, and it's changing your posture. And it's, you know, it's, it's, again, very complex. It's very complex. It's recharging your energy. So how do you work throughout the day? Um, how are you giving yourself breaks? Like, what are you doing on those breaks? Is it, how are you sleeping? And it's ma it's mindset. It's how you master that, that mindset and you start working toward having, um, understanding your own way of looking at the world and, and giving yourself the tools to work on the things and, and get the things that you really want. And so it's really this sort of, this mixture of different threads but what I tend to find and I think the way that the traditional sort of diet and fitness world works is like you go super hard on one thing and then all the other stuff falls by the wayside and you're like okay great um you know it's either not working at all or I just get burnt out or I can't maintain this or you know what if we did a little bit and we sort of invested in the keystone habits that build those four different areas and then allow that journey to unfold, right? So part of what I do and part of this sort of philosophy is like, how can we like introduce simple habits, simple healthy habits that help people get get a foothold, right? And then that boulder keeps rolling and rolling. And by the time you know it, it's like taking off. But it's like moving it at the beginning is really hard. And I feel what people try to do is they just try to like get it going from zero to 60 
in the first week. And then they cannot maintain that. It's too hard. It's too much work. It's too different. It's too much stress. And then they're right back at square one. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, so. Yeah, I think, I mean, like motivation is great and it's, it's a great kind of to, to start you off. But as you say that um, if you're if you're jumping in, like trying to do everything all at once straight off the bat is, mm. uh, it, it's overwhelming and motivation will get you a week, maybe two, maybe maybe a month. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's about forming those habits around uh, what it is that you're doing and kind of being able to sort of integrate them into your life in a sustainable manner, mm-hmm. so that you you keep doing them and then you can and you can build on them um which is yeah is really really cool and Steph I mean with um with the the harder to kill concept um obviously there's the there's the podcast what um like where do you uh where do you see it going where do you see yeah things, things going <laughs> with it it's been really great because so Prior to actually doing the, mm, is it was it prior to doing the podcast? The podcast came out a, a slightly before. So harder, harder to kill radio came out in in middle of 2015, and uh, at that point I was sort of beta testing. I have a six week program on my website called the Harder to Kill Challenge, uh, which helps people work on these building and balancing these four different, you know, aspects of sustainable health. And then a couple of months after we launched the podcast, then that that program came out into the world. And so now it's been over two years and we've had some just it's been a, like a great, crazy journey watching people change and grow and evolve and and do this challenge and realize that they can then take what they've learned as sort of tools to, to go out in their lives and achieve some really amazing things. So that challenge has been going on now for a couple of years. And currently in the works is a book project. Um, I can't give exact details, but it's uh, it's along that same vein and really trying to, to get this stuff out to the masses. And, you know, it's really interesting. I see there's a convergence going on in a lot of different, um, a lot of different areas, um, but particularly I think it's grown out of a lot of sort of the real food movement, the ancestral health movement. There are like several different people who are working on projects now or, or have books or have programs that are all sort of like, let's understand that this isn't just about food. Let's help people do this in a sustainable sort of simple way. And it seems like everybody has four different things. <laughs> mm. So, um, you know, Rob Wolf has his four pillars. Um, our friend Wrong and Chatterjee has a book coming out pretty soon. I think it's called The Four Pillars. So it's really cool to see this, you know, and a, so sometimes people are like, oh, hey, somebody else has four things too. And I'm like, well, that's good because it means that this is a, a proven concept, right? It's this idea and everybody's pillars are a little bit different or their sort of key messaging is a bit different, but it just sort of like if you see something out in the world and it's getting repeated over and over again, in a lot of cases, it's because it's working or because there's some validity to it. Um, if you like, if you see other people doing similar stuff in different ways and you're like, okay, well there's something to this. So I think it, it's great to have that convergence and um, it's great to amplify that message. Right. I'm, I'm really kind of tired of seeing people burn themselves up 
doing their fitness thing. And then they're just like, I have no energy. My adrenals are trashed. Um, you know, I like, I'm not happy. I'm gaining weight. Like what's going on? And, and, and so I'm, I'm sort of like, if we all just went not so hard all the time and, and sort of realized that we can make progress without having to go a hundred miles an hour, then I think we would enjoy the process a lot more, you know, and it's, it's not just about the outcome. It is about the process and it's okay to have a, a, an outcome based goal. I talk about this in my program all the time. I'm like, well, if you want to lose 50 pounds, that's an outcome based goal. But what are you going to do in the meantime to get yourself there? Right. And mm. the process of the process based goals become more important than the outcome almost. It's like, well, what am I going to do on a daily basis that's going to help me gain health so that I can then lose that weight as a byproduct of that? And so it's at, can we become invested in the process? Can we find things that are enjoyable for us to do? Like, Chris, I can't tell you how many times people are like, I hate everything about what I'm doing. And I'm like, then why are you doing it? You know, (laughs) and okay, if you're making big changes, at first, it might be different and kind of unpleasant. But once you get over that, you find ways to, to tweak things to suit your tastes and suit your lifestyle. And that's very important. And I think a lot of times we feel that to make progress, we have to be suffering a lot, and we have to hate every moment of it. And I think that's completely not true. Mm, yeah, a lot of people ask me, um, they're like, what, what's the best exercise that I should be doing? And my, my answer is, it's the one that you enjoy the most because yeah. that's the one that you're going to keep doing. Absolutely. I 100% agree yeah. with you. I mean, I have my biases and I would love to see yeah, people same. do some straight, some strength training for 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 health purposes and because and, I think it's a great way to empower yourself. But hey, if, if you're like, I do my like Zimba class and it gets me out of the door and I love it and there's a community and I'm physically active and it's like the best thing since sliced bread, I'm like, Far be it for me to tell you what to do, keep doing what you're doing if it's working, you know, um, so important. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually kind of that the thread of the conversation there is quite a nice segue into into unhustling, actually, oh my gosh. is that, yeah, um, yeah people, people push really hard in, in one area and yeah, they might end up with uh, like with great abs, but you can have great abs and still be unhealthy and be a bit of a D-bag. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, I think like when you when you talked about unhustling uh, at the symposium as well, and I, I really enjoyed kind of the when you went through the list of things and uh, had people close their eyes and stick their hand mm. up um, when uh, the, the kind of statements that you read out uh, started happening for them. I, I found my hand going up or maybe yeah, kind of a, th- a third of the way into your into your, I think it was twelve questions. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you um can you kind of elaborate a little bit on um like what you mean by unhustling? Yeah, so it's a term that I first heard um, from a woman named Anne Heyman. Um, I'm generally when I use clever words, like they're not things that I've (laughs) come up with. Uh, I'm actually notoriously not great at, at coming up with creative names or things, but. It, it's it's sort of a, a cheeky, again, another sort of like cheeky, quick way to sum up this idea of, well, okay, what's the hustle, first of all, it is. And when you think about what the hustle means, um, or what it has originally sort of meant in different connotations, it's either you're getting the wool pulled over your eyes, so you're getting hustled, 
right? It's not seen, it's not a positive thing or hustling, like hustling along, like busy, um, hurried, uh, shuffling slash like, you know, being pushed against your will. These are the things that I hear of, like, or that I think of when I hear the word hustle. And, you know, recently in the recent sort of the zeitgeist of our culture, it's become like cool. Like it used to be cool to say that you were busy. And now people are like, oh, no, we don't want to say that we're busy, right? Like busy is not good. Uh, and then hustle took its place. And so it's become part of this culture of like, I am a, and particularly I am an online entrepreneur. I am building my empire. Hashtag hustle. And I'm like, <laughs> I under, so, so there's, there's, okay. A lot of, so people want to argue about this. They're like, well, literally we don't mean it in a literal way. We just mean like working hard. And I'm like, why can't you just say work hard? There's nothing wrong with working hard, but you can't work hard 24 seven and not take time to recover and take some space and, and, and create that for yourself. And selling that illusion and selling that, like, the idea of the hustle is a false proposition. Because anyone that I know that has their own side gig, whether it's or their own main gig, and they're working for themselves, right? So they're either working online, or they have a physical business of some sort. Um, they very quickly realize that you cannot burn the candle at both ends and have a thriving business. And then if you are sort of the one who's in charge or you've got a very small team, if you are physically and mentally breaking down, you can't make your business succeed and thrive. So what are you going to do about it? And so I think it comes out of a couple of different. So the unhustle is this sort of like, let's check ourselves here. Like, let's just slow down a little bit. And it's really interesting how I think there's a perception. And, and this has happened to me along my journey, too. So I was a high school science teacher and not self-employed and have a business. And I think social media is plays into this. And I think sort of like this, we feel like we're hyper-connected to people, but it's very superficial. And I think that's played into this feeling of, um, you're already way behind. You should have started this 10 years ago. What the heck was your problem? Get on the train because we've all left the station. You're never going to be able to catch up. There's this already people are starting these brand new businesses and they're like, I'm already losing. It's a very, mm. the mindset and the mentality is a, from a very, it's a very unhealthy place. It's a very unhealthy way to look at it. It's like, I'm already behind. I need to work faster and harder to get caught up so that I can, right? You get the the sort of like feeling that comes from that too is just very, why it's not I good. It? Yeah, why am I not there? What, and then the thing is, is like have, and if we're talking about this from a like an entrepreneurial point of view, is like, well, how do you define success? What does that look mm. like? Get really granular and what does that look like? Because I think, it's, it's common. And I'm in enough of these groups on Facebook to know this is like, Hey, I had a seven figure. I had my seven figure launch. And everybody's like, Oh no, why am I not having a seven figure launch? That means like we've, we've like brought in a million dollars or more of sales. Like, why am I not there yet? Oh my God, what am I doing wrong? And it creates this panic situation. And then it makes people feel like they have to, 
um, neglect themselves in their own self-care, um, neglect their own physical health in order to put more mental energy. And we know from, from studies that have been done with things like uh, multitasking and attention spans and ultradian rhythms and stuff like all this stuff that we sort of know as a body of knowledge is like, no, actually humans do really well when we have punctuated periods of work and rest. But shockingly, that's not how we're doing things. And so, you know, on a more like everyday person level, like if you're not an online entrepreneur or you don't have a, you're not self-employed, is like, again, this sort of idea of like, I have to do and be everything, especially, you know, um, I have to excel at work. I have to be the best in my, whatever it is, though, like my personal pursuits. Uh, my kids have to be in everything. By the way, I also have to have a perfect body on top of all of that. And you know what I mean? Like, there's just this like really insidious feeling of like, I have to be and do all or I'm messing it up. And so that's how I, I see the hustle play out with like, my clients is um, there's this illusion that's sold, I think that and, and part of it comes from pop culture and media that um, and you see it all the time, especially with female celebrities, like, she just had a baby six weeks ago. Wow, look at how flat her stomach is. She looks amazing. Well, she either she could have really great genetics. She could have a zillion people helping her behind the scenes doing everything else that you would normally have to do. Someone else is doing so cooking, cleaning, doing the laundry, child care, whatever, right? We don't know what the story is, but we see that and we think, why am I not that? I have to work harder to get that. And, and so I think there's, um, it's twofold. Again, it's, it's thinking that we have to do more, um, or cut back. So we either have to like exercise more, cut way back on what we're eating. Like we have to, if we think as a little is good, more is better. And then we also have unrealistic expectations that we feel like we can have everything. We can have the booming, super uber successful business and the best personal relationships and the hottest body and be the most self, you know, enlightened, well-educated, well-traveled, like have the most talented kids. I mean, whatever it is, whatever your mix is, I feel like that's a really, um, it's a really like, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It's like a heady cocktail that we were sort of like sipping on thinking, we can have it all. And it's like, what, where do we get off thinking that we can have all the things? And, and it is, so in a way, is it sort of, um, it's at odds with what we're told, right? And in, in this sort of, I'm reading this book now called tribe. So this is sort of in the oh, forefront yeah. of my mind, Sebastian Younger. Um, it's this idea of like being, at this point where there's so much independent wealth and things like that, like people can be removed from their groups. It doesn't make them necessarily healthier. Um, and that we're sort of all chasing this thing that then once people get it, they're like, I'm not any happier than when I had much less. And so is the individualistic nature of our society contributing to that in a, in a way? I think so. I think people just need to wake the heck up too and say like, what am I doing? Do I really want to do these things? Is it making me feel good? Um, am I happy doing these things? What am I getting out of doing all of these things? Am I saying yes to everything and, you know, mm -hmm. not feeling great about it? I mean, it, it's worth, I think, a really 
and it's important to do that self inventory. Like so many of us do things because we feel like there's an expectation. Well, who created the expectation? We do a lot of the times. No one else is creating the expectation for us. This happened this morning. So I went to, um, went to my, there's a, a friend of ours at the gym. He's a fellow coach. He also does jujitsu at the jujitsu gym that I go to. And I said to him yesterday, Hey Josh, are you going to go to jits tomorrow at seven? He's like, yeah. I'm like, cool. Me too. So I got up this morning and, um, I was sort of like, man, I actually feel like sitting home and like finishing this work this morning. Cause I tend to work best in the morning. And I was like, but Josh, I told Josh I would go. I told Josh I was going to be there. So I show up this morning and I was like, Hey, I almost didn't come this morning, but I told you I was going to come. So I came and he's like, I almost did the same thing. I told you I was going to be there. So I came and I was like, we could have both just stayed home and it would have been fine. And there was no expectation. He didn't say you better be there or I'm going to be really upset at you and you're not my friend. Right. And so yeah. like, I think that's just like a really small example of how we, we blow these things out of proportion in our minds. Like if I don't do and be all the things then people in my life are going to hate me. And most of the time when you say no, people are kind of like relieved or they're like, Oh, too, totally. I get it. You know, mm. I think we're just, we're so afraid of, of what people are going to say about us. Um, we yeah. don't like to say no to things. Yeah. I, I think with, with it, you can, you can kind of get wrapped up about what you think society expects from you. And you think, yeah, actually, I like when you were talking about that before, you like have a great business, great relationships, great body, all this stuff. I was like, yeah, that'd be pretty sweet to have that. <laughs> um, but a- again, it again, I think it comes back to that self-awareness about like, are, are you doing it for you or are you doing it for what you expect other people want you to do like I always feel better um like and and more productive and and a better person if I've if I don't have a to-do list that's three pages long of just Mm -hmm. little just little shitty things that need to get done like if I've got a couple of things like a, a couple of big interesting things to work on that's cool I can I can go in and and do that and like even if I don't finish them, I feel like I've kind of gone and achieved. Whereas if I tick off ten mm-hmm. little twenty-minute tasks that um, other people need me to get done, that I that don't kind of uh, don't feel worthwhile to me, and I still have twenty of them on the list, then I feel like I've had a pretty stink day. But I've One been the hustling best- the whole way through. Yeah, yeah. One of the best pieces of advice I ever heard was. Um, you're, you can have a to-do list as long as it's stuff that you intend to do today. That has helped me so much because I, I, I'm not a big list maker. It lives all in my brain in a crazy web of stuff. Um, <laughs> it's a, a jumble up there. <laughs> but uh, occasionally I'll make a list. And, and when I was making a list before, it would have like 20 things on it. And I'd get to the end of the day and go, look at how much you suck. You didn't get you got three things done and there's still 17 things to do. And so now if I need to make a list, cause I keep a really pretty like meticulous calendar now, that's sort of how I keep myself in order. But, um, if I do need to list things out, it is stuff I only intend to do today. Hmm. Yeah. And then I get to the end of the day and I'm like, okay, cool. Like if I got four out of five or four out of four, then it's way better than feeling like there's still 17 things left on the list. 
That's mm, quite a it's a good way to do it. I mean, I, what I might do is like write kind of a, a list of things that I need to get done for the week and then pick a mm-hmm. couple off e- each day, write them down mm-hmm. and then put that other list in a drawer somewhere and uh, I can pull it out the next day <laughs> and kind of take a couple off there and put it put it away again. Yeah. It might be a way, a way around it for me. Um, Steph, I want to I want to ask you a couple of questions that I ask everyone towards the end of the conversation. Sure. The, f- the first one is, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did uh, <laughs> and how did you get through it? I will say, okay, prior to this month, it was something different. But earlier this month, um, I went to New York um, with the intention of meeting with lots of book publishers, which was very uncomfortable for me because I'd never been in that sort of a situation. And it also required me to be uh, slightly physically uncomfortable because I had to dress very differently than I normally would. I tried to find the comfiest sort of like business attire I could, but I had to wear shoes, like high heels and I do not wear heels. And so I was physically very uncomfortable. I have, like brought, brought, brought flats. And so I would change into them if I knew I was going to have to walk long distances. But like physically, it was very uncomfortable for me to be like outside of my norm. Usually I'm sort of in gym clothes or yoga pants or whatever. It's just, I, I just feel comfortable that way. So I would say like, that was a level of discomfort. And then also like meeting with people who were very, um, in my opinion, like these are very high powered individuals. These are very important people. I have to be able to show up. And um, one of the ways I dealt with that was I had very recently, and I didn't even know this is a thing, just learned about um, Amy Cuddy, who has a really cool TED Talk on presence and power posing. And so uh, before my very first interview, in sort of the span of three days, I did like a power posing thing. And you can find her TED talk on what it is and how to do it. And um, that's how I got through it. I was sort of like, okay, you like you're, you know, I kind of made the joke on social media. It's like the SoCal beach mouse goes to the East Coast big city. And like, I almost made a game out of it. Like, assuming another identity was sort of how I got through that. And then also like the power posing thing actually worked pretty well. It, It made me feel really just like, ah, okay, I got this. So I'll say that's sort of how I got through that. But, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was interesting to not only be in that sort of high pressure situation, but to be in a completely different environment. And I've been to New York city a couple times over the years and stuff like that, but to really sort of, I was on my own. No one came with me either, which was, yeah, I like to sort of travel with my husband or I'm like with family that was like, I am alone. I am, you know, I'm here to do business. Uh, let's put on the like dress, you know, almost like change into a character. And, mm. and I sort of felt like I was a character. And I felt like that was one of the things that helped me get through it as well. Yeah, cool. Like you've gone into the phone booth and changed into your, uh, your yeah. Tight. Cool. yeah, it was funny because um, <laughs> so I was very dressed in very corporate attire. And I had like the hair and the makeup and everything. And um, I, I guess I didn't realize how unusual it is to see a woman dressed in corporate business attire with leg tattoos. And uh, that was, I got a lot of interesting reactions to that. So it was very, it was a very, uh, it was a very weird experience. So yeah, I felt a little bit like a, 
like some kind of tattooed superhero going incognito for a couple days. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, Steph, what's a what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do, and why is that uncomfortable for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, my mind always goes to like sports stuff because mm. that just happens to be one of the places that I challenge myself. Um, I do want to sign up for like in my first kind of real jujitsu tournament and try my hand at competing. I've done one in our gym, so it was like a very low risk and familiar environment. So again, like sort of um, signing up for like a bigger tournament and going out there and giving it a shot. I mean, I don't know when and where, but that's one of the things that I want to put on my list. Cool. Very cool. And like, I mean, this whole conversation has kind of been about it, but do you have any other strategies that you use for approaching uncomfortable situations? Mm. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned, and this is just sort of a mindset around these things, because I'm, you know, again, growing up was a very like achievement oriented, perfectionistic, like, and perfectionism, there's like, we get to talk all, all day about how that actually comes from a place of fear and um, shame and stuff like that. But um, I think for me, like really being okay with sucking at something has been huge for allowing me to try things that make me feel uncomfortable because, you know, growing up as a very perfectionistic kid, it was like doing things that were like just enough in my wheelhouse that I knew I could do and do really well and not opening myself up to the possibility of failure. And this is still something I really deal with a lot in my adult life is this idea of like failing and making mistakes and taking risks and um, what that means about me as a person and uh, getting constructive feedback, asking for feedback from people is one of the things that I dread the most, most, most like I don't read Amazon reviews. I don't read podcast reviews. I don't, like I very, I'm still not like in a great space about like opening myself up to all of that. But I think what I've learned over the years is like, if I want to get uncomfortable, I have to be better with the idea of not being the best at something. And so it's come that getting better at that has come from trying things that I, I know, like, I don't have a snowball's chance in hell of being good at this, like, right away. And going through that experience and going, okay, didn't die, still here, learning some big stuff about myself in the process and like trying to be more invested in the process. And so it's manifested in smaller ways and in bigger ways. And I already sort of alluded to like um, starting jujitsu earlier this year, like that was a, that came out of left field. Um, I was inspired to, to try it from a lot of friends that I know that do it, but I had no experience prior like, I had never even been in a gym that's a jujitsu training facility. I had no idea, like, what do you wear? What do you, like, what do you do in a class? I don't even know anything. And um, I made this very conscious decision earlier, earlier this year. I was like, I'm going to try this because it's going to be really uncomfortable for me. And I want to put myself in a very uncomfortable situation because I realized I've been talking a lot about getting uncomfortable. And I was like, when's the last time I did something that was really uncomfortable for me? And it had been a long time. You know, I go to the gym, I do my thing, I feel like I know my way around, that's cool. Like my job is still like, even though I'm 
self-employed and doing new things. Like I kind of feel like I got a good handle on things now after four years. And I realized like you're living a really safe life in a lot of ways. Um, one of the other things I did this fall was I went to like a, um, a retreat for entrepreneurs. Didn't know a single person that was going, went by myself. Right. Like, so some of these things were like previously I would be reliant upon other people um, or I would want to know more before I went and like have a plan and have a buddy. I just went and that was a really transformative experience for me. It turned out like I, I learned a lot about myself as um, as a person. And, and so some of these these bigger things that I've done have just sort of been like, it's OK to be scared. Uh, it's okay to suck at it. <laughs> and there's opportunity. Like when you're a beginner, there's such opportunity to not put that pressure on yourself. It's like the best time, you know, learning something new and, and getting uncomfortable in that situation because there's like no expectations. In in the way I've learned to look at it, it's like it's the opposite of having expectations. It's like there's no expectations when you're a beginner you can be the crappy ass at it. And that's what everybody thinks is going to happen at the beginning. It's not only, it's not until you start getting good at things that then for me, the expectations start to creep on now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think for me, like going to this business thing that I talked about <clears throat> the very first day I walk in and everybody's sort of doing social hour. And, uh, it was a bunch of, it was all men in the room at that point. There were other women who were there. They just weren't in the room and I walked in and like, I'm a very feeling empathetic kind of person. And the energy that I got from that room was like, this is overwhelming. And I am not going in there right now. <laughs> and I let myself freak out. I let myself go outside and stand out by myself and have my moment and be like, you're not doing this. This is why are you here? And then I went back in, you know? Um, and so I think it's like letting, letting myself have those moments of, like it's not, it's okay to feel out of sorts and weird and awkward and strange. And, but that's some of the, the best learning experiences for me. Mm. So I think the, I think the biggest thing has just been sort of that shift of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've just summed up the kind of premise of the, of the uncomfortable is okay concept. Very nicely <laughs> there. Um, yeah. And like I, I like especially the thing that you said about trying something that you just know that you're not going to be any good at as well, because that's a really great sort of learning experience. And also it, it trains us to be okay with failure in inverted commas, um, because we know that we're not going to, we know that we're not going to be at the best at this straight away or possibly at all. But often what we'll do is we'll just kind of do things incrementally, like you said, that are just slightly beyond our capacity mm -hmm. so that we're, we're probably still pretty good at them. So we never actually experience that, that failure or that, um, that kind of real sort of challenge or knock to our, to our identity mm -hmm. that um, it, and kind of if you go through life sooner or later, that is either going that that's going to happen to you regardless and I think if you can strategically do that and have some of those experiences and learn from them then you're in a much better place to deal with that when an ex it happens to you externally 
Like if you can kind mm. of control the situation a little bit in the first couple, you learn learn those valuable skills. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all about sort of like what can you stretch and do. Um, and there are – and I can't remember the lady's name, um, but there's a really great, great way that I learned sort of about this idea of comfort zone is like you have sort of where you're at, which is your comfort zone. You have slightly outside of that, right, which is like your stretch mm. Where it's like not too crazy, but you're not doing it. And so like a lot of great things can happen there because as soon as you do those things, you're like, oh, wow, okay, like totally did that. That was easy. And then like beyond that, you have things that are slightly harder. And then beyond that, she calls it the die zone. (laughs) Like (laughs) I can't do that or I will die, right? And so like this idea of sort of stretching your comfort zone can come from like those smaller sort of safer experiences. It's not always going to be a giant leap, but then as you do start to sort of go into those, like for me going to jujitsu was kind of, it was a stretch for sure. It wasn't like a die. Um, that was me personally, you personally going to do something like that might be a die and it's totally up to us. But like then those sort of zones start to push out and grow further and further as you start to, you know, experience those things and have, you know, that, that, uh, that experience of like, Hey, nothing bad happened to me. Here I am still mm. doing okay. Like it's those zones start to sort of push out further and further and we start to do more things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I can't, I, I know what you're talking about with that, but I can't remember the lady's name who, uh, oh. who is that concept either. I'll have to look it up and I'll put it in the yeah, notes for the yeah. show. It's great. Steph, I have two more quick questions for you, um, but I just want to say, take a moment to say thank you very much for taking the time to, to sit down and have a chat with me. Um, hopefully, I'll get to have, a, have another com- in-depth conversation with you again, uh, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. But I also want to say thank you as well for sharing your journey with everyone and kind of being so open and vulnerable about the stuff that you have that you've gone through um, on your learning process as well with it going from yeah starting starting the blog to kind of where you are now and it's I think it's really interesting and beneficial for people to sort of see that evolution and then mm. get your expertise afterwards to kind of help them on their own journeys and I'm looking forward to seeing where where you go with it as well, because I'm sure that you're going to just keep evolving as you learn more and you experiment more with yourself. And yeah, so thank you so much for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. First question for, for you is easy. If people were digging on your stuff, where can they go to find out more about you? So pretty much the, the headquarters of everything is stupideasypaleo.com. Uh, there you can find links to all the social stuff, but basically I'm stupid easy paleo on all the social and then of course, harder to kill radio. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Final question for you is, do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Oh my goodness. Eek. Um, yeah, I would challenge you, and I'm doing this right now, um, personally, and with um, some of my uh, my actual Harder to Kill Challenge members, is I, I put to them a challenge for seven days, which is to do five minutes of mind, some kind of mindfulness meditation each day for seven days. And it can take whatever form you like, as long as it's sort of a way for you to gain quiet and peace of mind and clarity and breathing or however you want to approach that. So that, that'll be my challenge is for seven days, 
do five minutes of mindfulness meditation and see what happens. Very cool. Thank you for that. (laughs) And thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. There you have it, guys. Uh, That was a super enjoyable conversation for me to have with Steph um, and also to to re-listen to. And that's going to be one that I probably go back and listen to a couple of times. And you guys feel free to as well because there's a lot of information that Steph gave out there. Um, And I think, yeah, for me, it's going to take a couple of listens before I'm able to process all of that. Thanks for taking the time to... uh, to listen to us today because I know it is a a slightly longer episode than usual but I think you guys will agree that it is well worthwhile Uh, just remember that the show today is brought to you by the guys at howtomakesimplevideos.com use the code uncomfortable at checkout for a hundred bucks off their course if you're not into making videos there are a couple of other ways you can support the show uh, hit subscribe to the sh- uh, to the show on your favorite podcast app so you get new interview episodes every Tuesday and a new mini episode every Friday. Um, if you've listened to a couple of shows, you like what you hear, then make sure to leave us a review. It helps the show get into more ears and more minds. Um, share the episode out on social media with your mates. I think there's a lot of value for people in this one. Uh, or you can donate a couple of bucks to the show via www.patreon.com slash uncomfortable is okay. Thank you as always to my super talented brother Jeremy Desmond for the uh, slightly uncomfortable theme music to go along with the show. And thank you guys for getting uncomfortable with Steph and I today. Mm-hmm.